Father in heaven, we really want to understand what Jesus needs us to understand about him and his role in our lives in these last days. We do not take lightly this discussion. We recognize that in the history of our church, there's been a struggle. And we know, Lord, most importantly, that we're still here. And as long as we're still here, we know that we need to listen closely to your voice. In this class today, may Jesus be lifted up. May our ears hear what you are trying to communicate to us. May the words I speak be directed by your Holy Spirit, not because I'm worthy, but, but because I simply want to communicate what you want us to know. Thank you for hearing our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, today I want to kind of uh, go a little more into 1893 and the General Conference in terms of a little bit of follow-up to what we were talking about yesterday, and then today uh, we'll move into our uh, topic that we have uh, already planned for today, In Christ Our Righteousness. So I'm kind of picking up a little bit from our class yesterday. And by the way, if you will remind me at the end of the class today, I will make it worth the time that you stayed by for at least a few of you. <laughs> if that sounded intriguing, good. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I'd like to talk to you a little bit about the good news and the bad news in terms of the follow-up to the 1893 General Conference. The camp meetings and various conferences received much of the same blessings. The church papers reported positive results around the, uh, the Seventh-day Adventist churches. One report from Kansas, from a Pastor Stebbins out there, said some have found peace for the first time, and we can testify to the droppings of the latter rain. In North Carolina, Pastor Shireman said, brethren, here are shining with the blessing of the Lord, and they have been receiving the latter rain. As we talked about yesterday, it's clear from the testimonies of the people that experienced that time, and then perhaps even more importantly from the pen of Ellen White, that the latter rain was being poured out upon his people during that time. It's not a discussion that we tend to have very much, we tend to always be talking about one day the latter rain will come. One day the latter rain will come. But how often have we talked about the fact that the latter rain had already started? And that is a foundation that we have been laying in this class and that we tried to really identify yesterday that that's where we are today. We are between the time when the latter rain was poured out, began to be poured out, I should say, to be clear, clear, and where we are today, asking for the latter rain, in some cases, as though it never had ever started. Hence the reason for Ron Duffield's title, The Return of the Latter Rain. But uh, Ron Duffield puts it this way. He said, such reports should cause rejoicing as we review our history if it weren't for the rest of the story. 
Certainly we can learn from the victories gained, but ultimately, if the latter reign began and was not hindered, would not Christ have long ere return, returned long ere this? So it is that Satan, fearing for his very existence and continuing in his, in his insidious rebellion, brought several strategies against the Church of 1893 to make of none effect the beginning of the latter reign and the resultant cry. And that's what I want to share with you in the first part of our time together. I am... Unfortunately, darkness did follow. And that's what we need to be able to understand. You see, when the Spirit of God is being poured out, it is not... It is historically accurate that the devil does not just sit around and say, too late, Spirit of God's here, can't do anything. Spirit of God is trying to help his people get ready, but the devil is trying to prevent that from happening. And when that work begins, the devil especially goes to work. And he has a lot of tools in his toolbox that he uses. If you go back to in history from the time of Christ until today, it's always been that way. I, I, one example that just comes to my mind quickly is Martin Luther. Martin Luther, at the time of the Reformation, he did the work that needed to be done, and, and at the risk of his life, many had died before him, and the work was going forward. Along came the tools that the devil had in his toolbox. And they're the same tools that I'm going to identify for you right now that were used in that time. The devils had a little bit of time to perfect those tools, and he has indeed done that. One, through fanatical criticism of the church. Two, through worldliness in the church and in our schools. Through mistakes, number three, of the messengers themselves through pharisaical blindness, which continued to fight against the Minneapolis message and its messengers, even attributing the very work of the Holy Spirit to extremism, excitement, and fanaticism. Satan succeeded in bringing about a delay. We need to understand that part of our history because that part of the history reminds us it could happen again. And the devil will try. At one point, the devil will succeed, but he will fail in the overall process. Unfortunately, he's managed to bring about a delay, a 130-year delay. But it's a delay nonetheless. It's in the scope of thousands of years of the Earth's history. But now we're down to the wire. And that's what the Lord's trying to help us with. Let's talk about the first one so we get a little bit of that context. And this comes uh, again from uh, Duffield's book, um, Wounded in the House of His Friends. And he lays out these four uh, situations that develop. And he said the first one is relationship to fanaticism. He says the, that one of the things that developed is somebody came along and decided to bring the message, the church is Babylon. Now that one has not only been there from that time, but early in, my, early in my ministry, I encountered that in one of my churches. It actually came from someone who was visiting, but they came as a visiting messenger. 
And as a result of that, I became suspicious of some things were going on after a year. It was related to education. It was good at first, but then some of the members wanted to bring this person back. And I heard some of these rumors. I called them and talked to them, and they indeed were honest enough to verify, yes, they believed the Seventh-day Adventist Church was Babylon, and you needed to come out of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I warned my people. So uh, at any rate, I don't want to get too far down that track, but she wound up still coming because some of the mem members invited her to come still. And they started, some of the members started to go out. She would baptize them in the name of Jesus, take them out of the church, and many of them left never to return. And I say many, fortunately it wasn't, it wasn't as big as it could have been, but they were still about five to 10 people got caught up in that. Some of them did come back and that's the really good news. But this is a dangerous factor out here. Stanton and Cald Caldwell were two individuals. Stanton, first of all, was disgusted over some of the wrongful actions of some of the Adventist workers. And he wrote in a, loud, a, a track called The Loud Cry and called people to come out of her. Now, instead of it being out of Babylon, as in Revelation, it's out of her, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Caldwell was another individual who, after a week of intensive Bible study, a relatively new Adventist, was convinced that the church was in a death sleep. He got a Stanton tract at the 1893 GC. Remember, we talked about that yesterday, and was convinced even more that he was right. The two of them teamed up together and went to Australia. I don't know what attracts people to Australia <laughs> when they are getting in that kind of situation, but that happens repeatedly, even in this century, to proclaim their message. Ellen White was quick to respond, showing the utter fallacies of their claims. And if you want more information on that and what she did to combat that problem, I encourage you to go to Duffield's material. I just don't have time to dig into it. The second item that came in was the worldliness in the church. And when we go to Battle Creek, it gets a little bit too close to home. We're in Michigan here. And in Battle Creek College, there were some challenges that came up. You see, in 1892, there had been a significant revival at Battle Creek College as part of the ongoing revivals after 1888. We have not had time to really get into that and to uh, rep, you know, represent some of that in our, in our study, but it is in the, in the books that, uh, that are available to you. Prescott was the college president at the time. Remember, he had been affected shortly after 1888 by one of the revivals, and as a result, he became a spokesperson for the 1888 message of righteousness by faith. And he was also the president of the college. He was an educator. There was an incident that took place um, in, uh, uh, in 1893 that involved a sleigh ride. It was in December of the year, and they, uh, oh, no, I'm sorry, it was just before Thanksgiving, and, you know, Michigan does get some snow about that time, and there were a couple young people who decided to take a sleigh ride unsupervised, unchaperoned would be the better word. I think it involved two couples, two guys and two girls, and as a result of that, violating the rules, there was a situation that developed in there. But the faculty prayed for that situation. Actually, that was in 1892. I don't want to get out of context. That was in 1892. 
And because of the fact that the Spirit of God had been working on the college campus, the faculty were careful about the steps they took in response to that action of those students. Instead of just hastily dismissing them from school, which they had the right to do, the Spirit of God led them to work prayerfully, emphasis on prayerfully, with those young people. And it wasn't long before those young people came to the faculty and confessed what they had done and asked for forgiveness. And as a result of what took place there, those students coming forward and taking that action, a revival broke out on the campus. Hallelujah, right? That student revival broke out there. It was not one of fanaticism or excitement. It was a simple response to the Spirit of God and to the prayers of the faculty who were praying for those individuals. Now, I want you to keep this in mind because you're going to hear about this again in a little bit today. You want to see more about that? Go to uh, the book on ch in uh, chapter 4 and you'll see more about that. Prescott reported, though, that in July of 1893, a lack of unity and loyalty among the faculty, faculty had spread to the students. 92, now it's 93. You see what's happening? We should take heed from these lessons, my friends. The Spirit of God, when the Spirit of God starts to work, really wants to begin to move it through the church. The devil quickly tries to put on the brakes, and he does it by bringing in a lack of unity and a lack of, of loyalty and the faculty started to get into that mode and it began to spread to the students. Prescott, re Prescott reported that in July of 1883. Um, Ellen White, uh, I, by the way, he says it was caused by a negative reaction following the 1892 revival. There's a reason why there was a negative reaction. I'll come to that. Ellen White spoke of saying that the, while the youth were moved, the educators lost their, their clear spiritual discernment. And what began to come in was competitive sports. American football in 1867 was born at Princeton, if I remember correctly, and the sports programs in the schools of the world developed programs that made their way eventually into Adventist colleges, primarily at Battle Creek. The Battle Creek football team was playing against a local high school team, a contested call, yay, that never happens, right? Contested call in the game brought the game to an end at a tie. Battle Creek College, Battle Creek College, Battle Creek Adventist College, was not willing for it to end in a tie. Because of their combative spirit, they made a big deal out of that whole situation, which made the newspapers in Battle Creek, and they gave special attention to the fact that the Battle Creek College was having a hard time with the call. And they gave attention to that whole situation. Should get our attention a little bit, but let's not get sidetracked too far. So the first problem was fanaticism. The second problem was 
the issue of worldliness that crept into the school, and that is only one illustration of how it crept into the church, and then only using that as an illustration of what happened. Another way that the devil got into the church and began to disrupt this revival that was taking place and the message of 1888 and righteousness by faith moving ahead, Christ our righteousness at the focus, was that there were mistakes of the messengers. This is always a scary role. It's one of the reasons I asked you please to pray. I'm a human being just like anybody else. I can make mistakes. But just because I make mistake does not mean that God's message is not true. And that is one of the things that has resound, resounded through the Adventist church since this time that we're speaking of here. I want to identify a situation that's in the book. I can't go into all the details of how it developed and what came along, but there was a young lady by the name of Anna Rice Phillips. Anna was a young lady, as I remember, as I recall, from India. And she came to the United States and she got connected uh, with the Adventist Church through the Chicago Bible School that was being conducted there by the Adventists. She was a student there and became a Bible worker. Eventually, as a result of her training and her skills, she was looking for a place to do Bible work. Makes sense. She got a couple of offers. One of those offers was from an elder Rice in Ogden, Utah. She eventually took that call, went out to Ogden, Utah, and unfortunately, what he was really looking for was not a Bible worker, but a housemaid. He made her a maid in his home rather than a Bible worker. And while she was there, she had a dream or a vision in regard to Rice himself. A little bit of the details is that she shared that testimony, uh, said that she had a testimony. He said, write it out and then I'll look at it. She wrote it out. He looked at it. He said, everything that you said is true. It actually began to change his attitude and the direction of his life. And that set up a reaction that continued to move forward. Eventually, the testimony that she had and another one that she had as well made their way to A.T. Jones and to W.W. Prescott, and also Wagner, as I read a little bit more, but didn't get it into my notes here on the screen. Jones requested a testimony of Anna to be read at the 1893 General Conference session. Olson, wisely so, opposed it. But on December 30, 1893, a testimony of hers was read in Battle Creek, A.T. Jones was corrected by Ellen White in regard to it. Jones repented immediately to others. Remember, Ellen White is where? She's in Australia. And Ellen White sent that correction to him. He got that correction. He read it, and the reports are that immediately he uh, wept and uh, spoke to people of the fact that he'd made a mistake. He went to the congregation and spoke to them as well, and others reported that he felt very bad indeed. But unfortunately, the damage was done. It brought reproach upon him, Wagner, and Prescott, and the whole approach to what was happening. People are just looking for excuses not to accept the message that Jesus has given us. It's um, kind of interesting, isn't it? That's about all I can say. Yeah, 
I, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're talking about rice, the name yeah. of the rice? Yeah, uh, what actually happened, thank you. No, it's not just coincidence. I just picked up on what you said. Actually, uh, Elder Rice's wife was very nice to her, and eventually they adopted her, okay? And, and that's a part of uh, what happened there, and that's where that all comes to, comes to light. The fourth issue that developed in the church was that there were charges that the outpouring of the Holy Spirit was fanaticism. So first of all, you have fanaticism, and then lastly, lastly you have the actual work of the Spirit of God being claimed to be fanaticism. Duffield puts it this way, of all the tactics Satan used to derail the beginning of the latter reign and the loud cry, his inciting of those in responsible positions to identify the 1892 week of prayer and 1893 general conference session revivals as merely the results of fanatical excitement, extremism, and fanaticism brought his devilish plans the most success. This is where I go back to what you heard me say earlier about the connection that happened with the issue in 1892 at Battle Creek College. You see there were people, their names are on the screen, leveled by Uriah Smith, John Harvey, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, and many others. John Harvey Kellogg in particular saw the revival that was taking place in Battle Creek and immediately labeled it as, oh, I've seen that kind of stuff before. It just, it just does no good. It's destructive. It's not helpful. He wouldn't allow the message at all to be spread into the sanitarium, and he resisted it. Uriah Smith, of course, was already resisting it, and others as well, and they put the brakes on what was happening there. They claimed that wasn't the work of the Spirit of God. It was really just fanaticism, extremism. There was excitement that was going on that was not Holy Spirit-led. And he, the devil got the most success out of doing this. Ellen White clearly combated these issues and laid the blame for what was happening with the problems, with the leadership, and in Battle Creek. Another thing that developed along the way is that there was what Duffield uh, speaks of as an Aiken in the camp. As you look at the situation, you can understand it. It's clear in the history, the letters that go back and forth between Elder, uh, Elder Olson, the president of the General Conference, and Ellen White make it very clear the issues that were going on here, and you'll see that in a moment. There were two individuals, Archibald R. Henry and Harmon Lindsay. Henry was the treasurer of the General Conference. He had a lot of skills, and uh, he did a number of other different things as well from time to time, but mainly he was the treasurer of the General Conference. Along with him were Lindsay, was Lindsay, who was a financial administrator as well, serving alongside of Henry. Notice this, both of them de doubted the prophetic calling of Ellen White and constantly worked at undermining the Minneapolis message and the messengers. And this was an ongoing problem, an ongoing challenge that was there. Ellen White addressed testimonies, plural, to O.A. Olson that he needed to address, that he needed to address, sorry the typo there, the existing evils at the heart of the work. But Olson did not follow the directions, and he admitted he did not. 
And Ellen White specifically said, you did not follow my directions. And the same things went on accumulating in their objectionable features. She expressed her concerns before leaving for Australia, again then in 1894, and then again in 1895. Her 1895 letter referred Olson to the case of Aiken. Not that Olson was Aiken, but that the men that were in the office were Aikens in the camp. Uh, this is some significant language Ellen White uses, and, uh, and it's there. I, I want to pause here for a moment and help us to understand that any time the devil knows that the Spirit of God is doing the work, he's going to go to work to try to sidetrack that work. It does not fall on my eyes and my heart any differently it falls on the leaders of the Michigan Conference and anybody else who has ever, uh, ever approached this particular subject to understand that this is a battleground for the devil. You and I need to pray like we've never prayed before because Jesus is trying to finish his work and the devil does not want it to be done. This is not about me. It's not about you folks. This is about Jesus Christ. And you know that when you start bringing Jesus into the equation, and I mean Jesus into the equation, and you begin to go the direction that Jesus is leading, the devil will resist that with everything he's got because it's all he's got left before Jesus returns. So I want to move now into the topic of today, and that is Christ our Righteousness. I hope that you have seen the value of sharing this history with you. We often don't share this history. We try to get into a discussion of a particular topic, a particular theology, a particular doctrine, but we don't go into the history of how this has developed in the church and the difference that it makes in our ability to understand that message and to realize what's really going on. And that's the thing, that's really that turned on my mind to trying to understand what's happening and what is making an impact here in Michigan. It's not just us here in Michigan, it's wherever people start looking at the message. But I work in Michigan, you live in Michigan, most of you. And so we're all a part of what's happening here in Michigan. I'm not talking about what is or isn't happening anywhere else. I'm talking about what is happening here. I want to identify some principles for identifying the 1888 message. In a lot of ways, it's relatively easy to go in and get in the history, especially if you have as thorough a history student as Ron Duffield has proven to be. But I want you to know that when we start going into where we're going now, this is where we especially have to pray for God's special guidance. I want to tell you that there is a place of safety that we should go primarily to the original sources. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. The Bible is a primary source. Amen? Amen? We should go to the Bible as the place where we identify what the Bible says. The challenge we always face is when we try to get into understanding what the Bible says and we do it by having what somebody else said the Bible says. Why do we have so many denominations today? Because of the fact people have been doing exactly that. 
Martin Luther was on the right track, heading where he could, but he only lived so long. As soon as he died, then everybody that was Lutheran stayed Lutheran. And if anybody else came along trying to help out with the Word of God, then they started being, oh, you know, that Luther didn't say that, so we don't believe that, and then you go on to Cal... I ain't know the whole thing. The Bible's the place to start. Amen. The Spirit of Prophecy in Seventh-day Adventist Church is richly blessed to have Ellen White as a servant of the Lord who submitted to her guidance and shares with us so much that we need to know and understand. But then there's a primary source that we must not discount either, and that is the writings and the sermons of individuals that clearly were identified by Ellen White, the servant of God, as individuals who were also serving God in this particular capacity, namely A.T. Jones and E.J. Wagner, and as you will see today in what we do in just a couple of moments, W.W. Prescott. Now, there were others, in, individuals who were also faithful in doing this work, and I'm not trying to exclude them, but they were two primary uh, voices and messengers that God used to bring the 1888 message, and we use that term only to be able to zero down into the time in which it was given, and that term goes all kinds of different directions, so you have to be careful with it. But if we want to understand what that message was, we need to go back to the primary sources. Now, folks, this is where I want to try to help you to understand the difficulty that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has today. When you start getting into the history, there's a lot written on this, but it doesn't all agree. There are a lot of wonderful people out there, people that love the Lord and love the church and have been doing what they believe to be the right thing. But when you and I go and read some of these histories, you'll find that they don't connect with what we've been talking about, and they go a whole different direction. And they even discount the message of 1888 and say, look, the church did it. It's okay. There's nothing there you need to go back to. Forget about Jones and Wagner. Don't mess with all of that. We've got it all straight now. It's really just the message of the uh, reformers anyway, and that's the way it needs to be. But that's not what Ellen White says. It's not what the history records if you look at it in its entirety. And I, 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 that's, I don't know what else to say. You've got to go and see what is said there. So here's an area of caution. The history books that have been written about 1888 and related, if you read them, read them carefully. And I told you earlier, one of the things that has tremendously helped me and in our study here in Michigan as we've been looking at the material that Duffield has done, he is so thorough in his history that he clearly shows from the historical sources that many of our historians that I'm not going to name who have written an awful lot on this subject have actually contradicted themselves. In one case, he actually quotes a situation. He clearly, systematically shows the progression of where this quotation that comes up that is repeatedly used to discount the 1888 message. And he shows that it came from one individual who made the statement not based upon fact, but based on his opinion. And it has consistently over the years been used by historians as a way to prove that, that all that 1888 stuff just needs to be put off to the side. And when he digs all the way back, you find that it's what we call, what historians will call, circular reasoning. Mm -hmm. 
because it all goes back to that one individual who made that statement that supposedly had it right, but when you compare what that person said with the people who were there, you find out that person's opinion was incorrect. When we go to that kind of a situation, we fall into a dangerous trap. Remember, the devil is not happy. So he's doing everything he has, can to confuse. That's why I say to you, go to the original sources, go back to those times. If you want to understand what the 1888 message, 1888 message was, then go back and look at that message and the message that was shared along the way, and that information, fortunately, is available. I wrote this slide down and then I left it blank. <laughs> Areas where questions were raised on this subject is where we need to tread very carefully. I wanted to list a number of different points here and I couldn't do it. Because I want to be really, 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 really careful. If I start going into some of these areas, it's really easy for me to start sharing my opinion and to lead you down a track that takes you away from doing what I just said you need to do. And that is go to the original sources. So what I'd like to do for the time that we have in front of us is to go back to the original sources. I hope I have time to do enough of this to make it clear and to whet your appetite to continue to go into this. But um, I also want to come up to one other point, and I hope I have enough time to do that as well. I think it's in my notes, and, and I'll do it. If I don't, I'll come to it tomorrow. So don't worry a whole lot about what it is. I'll tell you when it's time. I do want you to know that there are a couple of areas where there are a number of different issues that come up here in, in this discussion. Again, let's go to the, uh, the other original sources. Because when we get into the subject of righteousness by faith, we get into perfectionism. We get into, and I'm talking about all different aspects of this whole discussion. And as we look at all of this, it starts raising all kinds of eyebrows. Folks, if you want to know what is true and what's not, go to the source, the Word of God, and say, what does the Bible say? We get into the nature of Christ. Was it the nature of Christ before the fall or after the fall? Do we get into um, how is it going to be at the end of time and how are we supposed to live and, and just all kinds of different things. And that's why I say to you, please be careful about your sources. Tomorrow, uh, I, if I have time, I'll tell you a little personal story of my own journey in this regard over the last 40 years to help you to understand that I do have some knowledge in relationship to how that journey can go. And I want to make sure that it is in the appropriate context to share with you. But before I do anything else, I want to share some information with you from some of those primary sources. So I'd like to go, first of all, to Prescott's Armadale Sermons. They're in your notes that I gave to you. It's not in the study guide to the 1888 message, but it is in um, the notes, my notes uh, for, for session number four, and it looks like this, okay? It says, Christ our righteousness, and you get in there, you get a little farther down, you will see it. 
And uh, let's see, somebody found the page. Pay oh, I forgot to put page numbers, sorry. Yeah, actually it begins on page three and then it gets into about where uh, Bernie just said, where it gets to one of the sermons. But I'm gonna share a little bit of information on the screen in bulleted points that is uh, more detailed given here. Uh, Fred Bischoff has uh, got a document out, 1895 Evangelism, which has a lot of this material in it, and you can get it online. It's available online. It's in printed form, a uh, number of different ways you can, you can find that there, and it's in uh, PDF format, and there's, you know, as far as I know, nobody's charging for it and, uh, and, and that kind of thing. But here, let me just give you a little of the background. The Armadale, Melbourne, Australia camp meeting took place on October 17 to November 11 of 1895. Who was there but a man by the name of Prescott? They get around even in those days, didn't they? Prescott, who had been the president of Battle Creek College, was now down in Australia, and uh, he was working down there, um, and he even... Uh, uh, was working as an evangelist, and uh, he spoke over 31 times at that particular session in those days. Now, those of you who speak understand that speaking takes energy. <laughs> and, uh, you know, a lot of people think preachers, all they do is preach, and they just don't, that's nothing, that's not work. <laughs> all right, first of all, you've got to have something to say. The second of all, you've got to have the energy to say it. And doing 31 times in that period of time is quite, uh, quite significant. It's good to have a three-week Yeah, was that the, shh. <laughs> we talked about that yesterday. I don't know whether we're... <laughs> yeah, we still have those calls for two-week camp meetings. I don't stretch it too far here. And it's a, uh, we're told that he presented all of his messages, as he put it, as it is in Christ. One of the things that we have really struggled with as we've been talking about this is how do you make the messages that we preach, you know, we do Unlock Revelation. And Wes Peppers and I were talking a little bit about this uh, after our meeting in January. As we were having that conversation is how do you do this? You know, I mean, we, I, I've been trying to put Christ in my sermons. I mean, I, you know, I talk about Jesus in my sermons. And, and I said, so what is it that we're not doing that, that I, we should be doing? And then we got a hold of these sermons and we're looking at them. And you know, as simple as it is, he, he does it in such a way. You've got to read them to understand. So that's what we're going to do a little bit of. But first of all, a little historical background here. Maggie Hare was a stenographer and she took down in shorthand Prescott's sermons they had a deliberate plan. Boy, I'm telling you, this was cutting-edge technology. She took those sermons down in shorthand. They took those then and printed them and made them as pamphlets available to the canvassers to go and share in the communities and hand out to people. There were a lot of non-Adventists who attended those meetings at Armadale. What began to happen in Armadale, you look at the details and all of that, is that people from the community started to come in. Now, just before they went, uh, had, they had this camp meeting, the Adventists went in the communities handing out general, I mean, uh, great controversies. <coughs> Have we ever done that before? Yeah. And they handed out these uh, great controversies in there, and they visited with people and all of it. But the non-Adventists were kind of taking a you know, kind of a standoffish, back away from these Adventists and who they all are. 
But when the camp, because of what was passed out, and, and uh, then when the camp meeting started in the suburb of Melbourne, Australia, some of the people, non-Adventists, started to attend out of curiosity. But then they started listening to Prescott, and they started making comments like, well, this is Jesus. Well, this is Christian. This is, this is good stuff. This is, and they, they were surprised that we were who we were. And then they began to listen to those messages. And he was talking so much about Christ, they didn't even realize when he brought in the Sabbath and when he brought in the sanctuary, when he brought in a number of these different things, because they were so logically connected with Christ, they couldn't argue with it. They weren't able, they didn't even want to argue with it. And they started telling their friends and they started bringing people into the camp meeting and the camp meeting started to overflow. They had, I believe, I can't remember the exact numbers, but I believe they were in the hundreds, if not the thousands of people that came into that community and were listening to the messages because Jesus Christ was being lifted up. The Spirit of God was connected. And the significance of this um, Duffield says is that in the, it is in the light of Ellen White's response to them because she, you see Ellen White was there. Right. See, people today are trying to tell us and the historians, some of the historians have tried to tell us we can't know what that message was and we can't understand what it was and it was, nobody has a record of it and so on and so forth. But the, when you go back historically, you find all these sermons that Ellen White is endorsing as being the message that was to be presented by Prescott and Wes and uh, Jones and Wagner, there we go. I don't know where Westcott came from, but anyway, uh, jumbling them all together. And she is constantly endorsing their work as being this message that God wants us to have. You know what? When the servant of God keeps repeating this again and again and again and keeps saying, this is the message God wants us to hear. This is the message that God wants to use to prepare us for his return. This is the message that is the third angel's message and the loud cry. At some point, you'd get the idea that it's not just what she says, but she's referring to the messengers as Jones, Wagner, and Prescott in this particular case. So um, I want to look at one of those sermons that's in your notes. So if you take your notes and look at it for just a moment. Do those I'm sorry? Do Here's what I understand, if, I, if I've read and remember what I read correctly, that I think they've had some of, uh, a few of them, but they've not gotten all of them. And they went looking into the archives. They said some of these things have not been published. And, uh, and I think maybe since the time when Duffield made that comment, uh, some things may have been published. But they have been able to go back, and they've gotten some of them, and we have that information, which is why we have them in this form, whether it's in the same form as a pamphlet or not. But these are the messages that were shared. These are the transcribed from shorthand messages that Prescott preached. I mean, it's the, de it's the real deal. This is not somebody's imagination. These are historically accurate. So if you'll take the notes and go to... Oh, I can't believe I left the page numbers off of here, honestly. Okay, roughly page something or other. <laughs> what did somebody say, seven? Something like that, yeah. And if you go to uh, page seven, if you number them, it's probably where it is. And it says, October 20, 1895, Sermon by Prescott. See that? Um, 
I brought in, see if I have it here, yeah. Right now it comes in a, in a compilation that looks like this in a printed form. And, uh, and it comes from that. It's also available online, which is where I took it from to, to put it in here. And then these sermons are listed here. And these are from the Bible Echo, by the way, because those sermons were, became articles in the Bible Echo, which was, uh, I think, like the signs of the times in, in, uh, in Australia, if I've got that analogy correct. All right, so let me look at this sermon just briefly. I don't have a lot of time, obviously, to read the whole thing. I'd love to do that and uh, just have you all read it and, and all that. Some of you would fall asleep as we did that, but let me head, get into a little bit of this sermon. This is quite a sermon that Prescott preached, titled Abiding in Christ and Walking in Christ. Now, as I read this sermon and then as a couple later, the next one in the, in the list, he's uh, specifically dealing with, with some things like the Sabbath. And it's just amazing how he's speaking about Jesus and then he tacks on the Sabbath. Because you see, what we usually do is we bring, preach the Sabbath and then we tack on Jesus. So here he goes. He say, starts off by saying, He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Quoting from 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. Abiding and walking are the lessons of this text. As a result of abiding in Christ, we ought to walk as he walked. The last, first lesson is abiding in Christ, abiding in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except abide in the vine. No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. John fifteen four and 5. Christ says, I am the true vine. There are a great many that profess to be vines, but I am the real vine. I am the vine that has life. We are the branches, but in the scripture, Christ is spoken of as a branch. Behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Behold, the man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Zechariah 3, 8 and 6, 12. For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant. I'm skipping down to Isaiah 53, verse 2. I am the vine, ye are the branches. But the scripture speaks of Christ himself as the branch. Christ is a branch unto God, that he may be a vine unto us. Before any branch can grow, there must be some life underneath that does not show itself. So the branch is, after all, only a root which has come up in sight, but which depends for life upon the roots that draw life from the soil. God is the source of all things, but he comes in sight to men in Christ Jesus, the branch. So he's drawing these analogies. He's pulling these pieces out. He's trying to help people understand that Jesus wants us to walk with him because he is the vine and we are the branches. We need to stay connected to him. And then uh, going down about a third of the pay, way down that page, he says, Christ became a branch unto God in order that he might be a vine unto other branches. But the branch abides in the vine only by having a living connection with it. Just as soon as the branch is severed from the vine, though it is not, is put back again with great care, it no longer abides in the vine. It will not abide in the vine except it be grafted. And the success of this grafting depends upon making such a connection 
that the life from the vine shall flow into the branch again. We abide in Christ, most abide in Christ as, so that as the branch abides in the vine, and then there's a page reference, so that the very life of God shall be our life. The branch is full of life, yet it has no life of its own. So we must present ourselves every day to be filled with life from God. Do you see the message is enveloping itself in Jesus? How that we have no life in and of ourselves. There's not an attempt here to try to say, you know, it's our works, it's our righteousness, it's all these kinds of things, and Jesus is going to come along and give us some aid along the way. It's the other way around. It's Christ enveloping our life, our lives be, in being uh, wrapped up in His. We're going to be walking with Him because we're connected with Him, and then Christ is doing that work in us. He goes on and he talks more about this. You go down where you see this brings before us the thought of Christ, our example. Bold letters, see that? He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. Not as men say he walked, but as he walked. And how shall we know how he walked? By reading and studying his life. That is where we find out how Christ walked, and there we will find out how we ought to walk. And we will walk as He walked, not wholly as an obligation, but as a result. By walking with Him, in other words, we're walking with Him. If one says he abides in Christ and walks not as he walked, his life is contrary to his profession. We do not get into Christ by trying to walk as He walked. We do not abide in Christ by trying to walk as He walked. But we first get into Christ, and then as a consequence, just as the branch will bring forth the fruit of the vine, so will the Christian who really abides in Christ bring forth the same fruit that he bore, walking as he walked. All right, he goes on and he brings this in and you just have to go through the development and I don't have the time to go through all that development. He gets in here and he talks about the time when they uh, getting together with Peter and casting out the net and, and, uh, and bringing in uh, and calling his disciples to follow him and so on, walking, in other words, with Christ. And then uh, dealing with the... Uh, the storm where he grabs Peter and brings him in again, it's talking now, he moves from that connection to abiding with Christ in terms of the walk of faith. And then he goes on a little bit farther and he begins to transition slowly from this connection with Christ. In the setting of this camp meeting, in an, in an uh, uh, what's the word I want? In a evangelistic camp meeting setting, He's bringing in Christ and then slowly weaves in the doctrines and brings them in here. If you look now, I am, let's see where I'm at. Um, go to the page, probably I'm guessing somewhere around 9 or 11. In the middle it says the controversy is Christ's time and hours. See that? Okay, 11, all right. I want you to see this. This is the part where the Sabbath came in and I was not another one is here. Why don't you see how he does this? He says, the controversy in Christ's time and ours. In Christ's time, the controversy between him and the Pharisees was how to keep the Sabbath. When Christ settled it, he settled it on the basis of the Scriptures. The controversy today is, which day shall we keep for the Sabbath? Settle it on the same ground. That is walking as Christ walked. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked, not as people say he walked. 
If someone says that Christ kept the first day of the week, go to the Bible and ask for the record. If some people, uh, if some claim that the Sabbath was changed by him or by the apostles in honor of his resurrection, ask for a thus saith the Lord. The word is our only safeguard. Guide, I'm sorry, walk as he walked. The man who walks as Christ walks will not necessarily walk as the leading religious teachers of the day walk. See how he slowly does this? We do it with PowerPoint. We do it with all these statements of these individuals. And then we say, oh, by the way, Christ kept the Sabbath too. Now, I'm overemphasizing that to make a point, okay? But you see how he does this? He's bringing this up in walking with Christ. He simply talks about the Sabbath and he says, you want to argue with that? That's fine. Just go to the Bible and figure it out. And, and then he just keeps marching right ahead with marking, walking with Christ. And the people, the non-Adventists that were attending that series, they, they I don't want to say swallowed, they, they enjoyed what they were hearing because they could not controvert that. They went back saying, why, did the, why do our preachers not preach this? Why are they not giving this? Boy, we're getting the message here. And, and they were excited about what was going on. And what Ellen White has been trying to get us to understand is that people of the world, when we start lifting up Christ, the doctrines are important, but when the doctrines come along with a walk in Christ, rather than the walk of Christ kind of being tagged on to the doctrines, God will be able to change the world. And it's also, it's more than that, but that's part of the journey. So I wanted you to see this bit of a sermon, but I have to, I have to conclude this part of our journey and go on to the last part that I want to share before we get done. Just go to the last part of the sermon where it says Christ is all and in all. He comes to the end of his sermon, and this is his appeal. And I, I can't have any idea what page it is. And it says, and in order to walk as he walked, we must know him in his capacity of adapting himself to us. The scripture says, sets him forth in this way, that we may appropriate the love of God to ourselves. I am the door, John 10. That is the entrance. No man can enter except through Christ. I am the way. I am the door and the way and the walk in it. I am the light of the world. I am the door, the way, the light. This is, a, this is a dark world. We need a light. I am the bread of life. We need strength to walk in the way. I am the bread of life. I am the good shepherd. He is the companion who goes with his sheep. I am the life. This is the power for the way. I am the resurrection. This is not the end of the road. I am the door. I am the way. I am the light. I am the bread. I am the good shepherd. I am the life. I am the resurrection. That is, I am the entrance, the road, the light to walk by, the strength to walk with, the companion for the way, the power for the way, and the end of the way. Boy, I feel a sermon coming on. <laughs> You can see what was happening here. And the Spirit of God is the only one who makes a difference in any message. But when the message centers on Christ in such a way as these messages centered, the Spirit of God was able to work mightily. And Ellen White says in the last days, in the days just before Jesus returns, that's what's going to happen again. Oh, my brothers and sisters, isn't it time that we started preaching the message of Jesus and the doctrines along with our connection with Jesus as a result of that? I believe the day is right here when instead of sending out 100,000 brochures and getting five people to show up to our churches, we start preaching the message of Jesus and the people will flood to the churches. But I want to warn you of something. Some of our people are not ready for this. 
some of our people are going to squabble over this message because the message includes what we talked about yesterday, the Laodicean message. The Laodicean message is spoken by the true witness and not everybody wants to listen to that message. That's why Ellen White says there are going to be those that are going to be shaken out. While there are those that are going to go out, the other people are going to come in. We're coming to that day. It's just before us. I really believe we're on the verge of that time. Good boy. All right, if you take out the study guide that I gave to you, we're not going to obviously, with the time that I have left in seven minutes, be able to get all the way through the study guide. I think what I'm going to do is come back to it tomorrow and we'll continue on from here. Let me give you a little bit of history to the study guide so that you understand it. The study guide was written by Dr. Clinton Walleen. I mentioned to you earlier, if you read in uh, Duffield's material, you find that there are a number of times when Duffield in the footnotes will quote Walleen because he wrote a master's thesis that had to do with some of these issues. And because of that, specifically Prescott, if I remember correctly, he mentions in there and, and he talks about that. And so um, he's been to our camp meeting before and he's also been to our pastors. And Elder Mitchiff called him and asked him if he would come and he would share some things with us. And he specifically, as I said yesterday, I'm just recounting a little bit of that, he said uh, when Elder uh, Mitchiff asked him if he would uh, be able to tell us what the 1888 message was, he was quiet. And because he knew what a daunting task that was and what a, a, a challenge it would be because of the fact that we get down so many of those roads that we were talking about. Now tomorrow we might have to identify a little bit more of those roads, but um, uh, today, because we're going ahead, we have to keep moving ahead. But I do want you to look at this, and so I want to finish today by looking at this, doing what I also promised for those of you who would stay, and then tomorrow we're going to pick up from here. I encourage you to take this home with you, and if at all possible, to read through it, this study guide, as we, uh, as we prepare for our last session tomorrow. I find this study guide very, very helpful. Uh, Elder Mitchiff asked him if he would help us in this study. And so you see there's four sections in here. And again, we're going to primary sources as in Ellen White, as you will see in the first one, attitudes toward the 1888 message, then two inspired sections, as two, two sections, inspired summaries of the 1888 message, and then finally 1888 and the third angel's message. When you look at the first section, it is page numbered as page five. You will see that, uh, that this information is here. By the way, I texted uh, Dr. Walleen and I said, are you okay with me using this material in my class? And he said, absolutely no problem. By the way, he said, greetings from Castle, oh, I can't remember the exact name. And I said to him, so what is the significance of this castle that you're at? And he said, the castle that I'm at is where the Pope uh, made the king of uh, the Holy Roman Empire stand in the snow oh. with bare feet. Uh, and that, it's, some of you may remember the name of that uh, castle, but at any rate, he said that's where he was. And uh, I thought that was very fascinating. So anyway, so he, uh, he, this is what he shares with. He starts, first of all, by sharing this letter that Ellen White wrote to Uriah Smith from Victoria, Australia in 1892. He says, be she says, be careful about what steps you take in expressing your differences with your brethren. 
You cannot tell how it pains me to see some of our brethren taking a course that I know is not pleasing to God. Be careful what steps you take, he said. Um, she said. <laughs> uh, that only happens to a preacher at the right moment, I'm going to tell you. That's like preaching and, you know, there was thunder and then all of a sudden it strikes. It, that happens. Going on beyond that sentence, which I will not repeat, you cannot tell how it pains me to see how some of our brethren taking a course that I know is not pleasing to God. They are full of jealousy and evil surmising and are ever ready to show in just what way they differ from Elder Jones and Wagner. Then she goes down a little farther and she says the words, and that's halfway down, says the words and actions of every one who took part in this work will stand registered against them until they make confession of their wrong. Those who do not repent of their sins will, if circumstances permit, repeat the same actions. I know that at the time the Spirit of God was insulted, and now I, when I see anything approaching to the same course of action, I am exceedingly pained. Down at the bottom of the page, I have the same desire for you to stand in the light up to the close of their source history as for them. I've been shown that God would be glorified by your standing in the forefront of the battle. This he would have had you do during all the years of the past, but you have failed of doing it again and again. You have grieved the Spirit of God. So the first part here is that uh, doing what we've already done, I don't want to go any farther than that, just reminding us of the attitude that was there and the need for the love of God to be generated in relationship to this issue. If you go to page 6, at the top of the page, the first full paragraph, says those who name the name of Christ should adopt Christian maxims. They should fear to ridicule the message or the messenger. Let no man say that his conversation is in heaven while he is manifestly groveling in the dust, and his thoughts and feelings are as far separated from God as the rest east from the west. The true Christian will fear to make light of God's message, lest he may lay a stumbling block in the way of a soul who may see and imitate his example. The church of God is to shine as a light to the world, but Jesus is the illuminator. Down at the bottom of the page, uh, page 6, the Laodicean message has been sounding. Take this message in all its phases and sound it forth to the people wherever providence opens the way. Oh, that's interesting. I'm not sure how that happened. Did you all find it now? Yes. Okay. My, oh, that's, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Oh, is that the one? Yeah, it is? Yeah. I don't know how that happened. I can't even begin to figure that one out, but at least you figured out where you are. Okay. Slightly, slightly different. It might be that I copied a slide. I know what happened. I used a copy we had originally, and then I am using a copy now that we copied later. That's what happened. Sorry about that, because it got printed out of a computer. That's how the pages got chained. Now go over to page... No, the next one. Eight. Okay, where it says inspired summaries of the 1880 message, part one. This is where I want to pick up tomorrow. I'm sorry I didn't get time enough to get into here, but I would especially like you to read this part. And this is where we begin to really dig into the message. I'll leave you just with that first paragraph. Elder E.J. Wagner had the privilege granted him of speaking plainly and presenting his views upon justification by faith and the righteousness of Christ in relationship to the law. This was no new light. 
but it was old light placed where it should be in the third angel's message. What is the burden of that message? John sees a people. He sees, he says, here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This people John beholds just before he sees the Son of Man having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. And then she says the faith of Jesus has been overlooked and treated in an indifferent, careless manner. You and I need to look carefully at the faith of Jesus, and this is where we will begin tomorrow. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for being with us today. We are not getting as far as we want to, but tomorrow, Lord, we want to focus in on Christ our righteousness. That's what this is all about. We've been looking at the history, but I pray that you will continue to work among us. This is not just about history, but it more importantly is about living today. It's about connecting with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and walking with him every day as Elder Prescott taught in Armadale. I pray, Father, that you will help us to see the light of Jesus and that we will walk in his light, that he illuminates our path, and that we will, that path will lead us to the kingdom of heaven where we can spend eternity with our Savior. As we leave this place, please go with us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.